Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 19, The Fall of San Antonio. I'm Brandon Seal. Juan Seguin had fought longer and harder for Texas than any man alive, and now they called him a traitor. How quickly people seemed to forget that it was he who had first ridden to the aid of his fellow Mexican Federalists in Coahuila in 1835. He who had returned to warn Texans of General Cosa's imminent arrival. He who had provisioned both the Siege of Bear and the Alamo defenders from his own ranch. He who had made perhaps the last failed attempt to relieve the Alamo. He who had covered the evacuation of the Anglo settlers ahead of Santa Ana's advance. He who had led the left wing at the Battle of San Jacinto. He who had escorted the remnants of the Centralist Army out of Texas with only a few dozen men. He who had defended the New Republic's tenuous border for its first three years with virtually no money and only volunteers. And he who had prevented that same Republic from burning San Antonio to the ground entirely. In spite of all that, his fellow San Antonians, his friends, now seemed more inclined to believe the whisper campaign of an invading Mexican general than the track record of Texas's most conspicuous patriot. Couldn't they see it for the ploy that it was by a vengeful Santa Ana to sow dissension between Tejanos and Anglos? Were they ignorant of the lengths to which Mexico was willing to go to pry off San Antonio from the new Texian nation? Texians had recaptured San Antonio in June of 1836 under forces led by Juan Seguin, but just three months later a Mexican cavalry unit rode in and briefly captured the town. Seguin's ranging battalion drove them off, but this didn't prevent another Mexican cavalry unit from crossing the Rio Grande just a few months later in February of 1837. Fellow San Antonian Def Smith and 20 rangers beat back this incursion, though again, Mexican cavalry would return the next spring too, as reliable as the greening of the grasses on the Texas plains. In 1838, Mexican forces began to harass San Antonio's newly prospering freight business as well, robbing wagon trains or impounding them for lack of proper paperwork. They began to conspire with Comanches and other Plains Indians to harass the New Republic and may even have played a role in provoking the incidents of the previous episode. San Antonians retaliated by supporting the 1840 independence movement of Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas, led by San Antonio Federalist José María Carvajal. Once again, San Antonians flocked to the call of land, liberty, and federalism, though this only engendered further enmity from Mexican centralists. In 1841, cockroach-like, Santa Ana returned to power in Mexico. He dispatched Mexican cavalry once again to attack San Antonio and to raid the ranches just south of town, in particular, the already partially ruined ranch belonging to Juan Seguin, for whom Santa Ana harbored a singular hatred. Texas Ranger Captains Jack Hayes and Antonio Perez, leading a force of only 25 rangers, again, half Anglo, half Tejano, defeated the Mexican raiders, The locals sensed that the triumph was only temporary. They, like Mexican centralists, appreciated better than many Texians San Antonio's strategic significance. Juan Seguin, who had just stepped down from his position as a Texas senator to serve as San Antonio mayor once again, called upon the Republic to better defend its borders. The Republic's general staff, however, had grander visions for how the Republic's limited military might be used. General Hugh McLeod commanded the regular Texian Army unit stationed in San Antonio. Graduating from West Point 56th in a class of 56, he was only 26 years old when he was appointed as one of the Republic's two peace commissioners in the Council House debacle from the previous episode. Now, General McLeod proposed to march on Santa Fe and assert Texas's claim over it, a 700-mile march away from an undermanned frontier under assault by both Mexican and Comanche forces. Seguin and most San Antonians opposed the expedition, realizing that it would drain precious resources away from frontier defense and that San Antonio would bear the brunt of any retaliation by Mexico. The Texas president himself came to San Antonio in June of 1841 to try to recruit San Antonians to the cause, without success. After repeated personal entreaties, he was only able to convince the 47-year-old José Antonio Navarro to accompany the expedition appealing to his sense of duty. Crippled since childhood, 
Navarro's deformed, separating leg made every step of the march an agonizing one for the elder statesman. The 320-man Santa Fe expedition was a disaster from the start. Lacking experienced guides, the men wandered across the waterless expanses of the Llano Estacado and might very well have died of exposure had not hostile Mexican forces found them. On October 5th, exhausted, hungry, and thirsty, the Texians surrendered without a fight and were marched from Santa Fe all the way to Mexico City, where they were imprisoned. All of the men were released by the following April, however, except for Navarro. Navarro was perhaps the only Texan whom Santa Ana hated more than Juan Seguin. As one of three Tejanos who had signed the Texas Declaration of Independence and given heart to many other Mexican independence movements that rose up in its wake, Santa Ana viewed Navarro as a special breed of traitor. Navarro's memoir and biography, compiled by David MacDonald, details all that he suffered because of Santa Ana's wrath. He was held in solitary confinement for months at a time during his three-year imprisonment. His perennially suffering leg was left untreated, and he was forced to recant his involvement in the Texas independence movement, all while Santa Ana openly maneuvered to have him executed. It was only the integrity of a few Mexican judges that kept him alive long enough to see Santa Ana deposed, albeit only temporarily, in 1844. During the confusion surrounding Santa Ana's removal from office, Navarro was able to escape and make his way back to San Antonio. There, he was greeted with a hero's welcome, and to his family brand, he added a loop of chain as a symbol of what he had suffered for Texas. Meanwhile, immediately following news of the Santa Fe expedition's surrender, San Antonians began to hear rumors of a retaliatory attack coming up the Camino Real. Mayor Juan Seguin, who along with many other San Antonians retained family and trade contacts south of the border, began to warn the Texian Secretary of War that an invasion was imminent. The Secretary's response was blunt and oddly insensitive. No help was available, he said, and he trusted that the town would take the steps necessary to secure itself. It sounded, if you'll forgive the analogy, like the kind of response that San Antonio had gotten for 150 years from authorities in Mexico City. And so, with much of his old ranging battalion engaged in a never-ending campaign against the Comanches and otherwise unable to defend the town, Mayor Seguin ordered its evacuation. On March 5, 1842, Mexican General Rafael Vasquez marched into San Antonio with 500 men and raised the eagle and serpent. Seguin and Captain Jack Hayes rallied their old rangers alongside old Ed Burleson, commander from the Siege of Bear, and on March 9th, this force arrived to San Antonio's northernmost farms near modern-day Mulberry Street. Without putting up really any fight, General Vasquez retreated, and Captain Jack Hayes' undersized ranger unit harassed him all the way back to the Rio Grande. Ostensibly, the objective of the 1842 Vasquez invasion was to capture San Antonio and then renegotiate the borders of the Republic of Texas. Yet Vasquez made no effort to actually hold San Antonio, and so in truth, it appears that his real objective might have been even more sinister. When he retreated from San Antonio, Vasquez made sure to steer his retreat through Seguin's family ranch, which his men stripped bare, leaving Seguin in dire financial straits. And then, in direct contradiction to this last act, Vasquez made sure to leave behind a baseless yet pernicious rumor amongst San Antonians that Seguin was secretly working with Santa Ana. From the present, it's a little hard to understand Santa Ana's resiliency in Mexican politics. All we see are his repeated and catastrophic blunders on the battlefield, his total disregard for Mexico's constitutions and institutions, and his disastrous impact on the Mexican treasury but that's only because we don't see his mastery of small politics. His repeated flip-flopping was just an artifact of his rather finely-tuned political senses, even if they betrayed a rather naked and unprincipled ambition. And he had a wicked talent for undermining political allegiances and reconfiguring them to benefit himself. And this seems to have been a part of his strategy to undermine the new Texas Republic. Santa Ana already held José Antonio Navarro, whose recantations of his participation in the Texas Revolution he planned to use against him. And if he could now discredit Juan Seguin, he would have struck a serious blow to Tejano and Anglo unity. Seguin's Texian opponents, and to be honest, he had many, 
gleefully took up the rumor against him. The Texian commander-in-chief who had wanted to burn San Antonio to the ground so he wouldn't have to defend it had never forgiven Seguin for defying him and going over his head to Sam Houston. General Hugh McLeod hadn't forgiven him for opposing his Santa Fe expedition, especially now that the expedition's outcome had proven Seguin right. And frankly, Seguin's general visibility and brashness had offended many others in town over the years in the course of his commercial and political dealings. And they all began to spin his prior warnings of the Vasquez invasion, which they had failed to heed, into evidence of his foreknowledge of or complicity with it, despite the fact that he had led some of the first and only forces that opposed it. His creditors began to take advantage of the situation and of the temporary ruin of his ranch as well to foreclose on some of his property. And the Whisper campaign soon erupted into open violence, as when one of his closest associates was nearly murdered in the street. Frustrated, broke, and persecuted on all sides, Seguin didn't know how to respond. Eventually, he became what his opponents wanted him to be, a collaborator with the enemy. It's a little unclear of exactly what went down, and even his Texian friends at the time, including Sam Houston and many others, refused to believe that he had betrayed their cause until they heard Seguin's version of events from his own lips, which most of them, sadly, never would. In May of 1842, while in Coahuila trying to recover some of his property stolen by the Vasquez invasion, Seguin was imprisoned by orders of Santa Ana. He was given a choice, a lengthy prison sentence or conscription in the Mexican army. When he took the latter option, he later claimed, he didn't know where that army was about to march. He was made an officer of a unit called the Bear Defenders, the Defensores de Bejar, which included men with family ties to San Antonio. The Bear Defenders were attached to a 1,200-man army assembling around Saltillo under Belgian expat general Adrian Wohl. In August of 1842, just five months after General Vasquez's invasion, General Wohl and his army began marching north along the Camino Real, past the same old Rio Grande missions that had ceded San Antonio's settlement 150 years before. Rumors of this second invasion ran ahead of Wall's army, and yet the Texian government did nothing. A few tried to secure funds for the defense of the so-called Western Settlements, meaning San Antonio, but there was strong doubt among many as to whether San Antonio could even be held against a determined Mexican attempt, and the young republic, frankly, had no money to spare anyway. On September 11, 1842, General Adrian Wool and his 1,200 men, including Juan Seguin, entered San Antonio at daylight. Their band marched into the Plaza de Armas and began to play music and to bugle their horns, awakening San Antonians to a terrible surprise. The invading army had managed to evade detection by the depleted ranging companies, which were now patrolling almost one-third of the state with only a few dozen men. Even Captain Jack Hayes and five scouts sent out the day before to investigate rumors of a Mexican force nearby had found nothing, as General Wool had looped far to the west to avoid detection. The local militia took up their arms, and a brief skirmish ensued. One hundred mounted Tejanos under Captain Antonio Menchaca of that old Presidio line counterattacked Wool's forces, to good effect, killing a few dozen with no losses of their own. But the size of the invading force soon became apparent. General Wool made it known that he would give San Antonians 30 minutes to surrender or he would raise the town. Some were able to flee. Many were trapped in town. Moreover, the district court for all of South Texas had just gone into session the week before, meaning that most of the town's most prominent men were all concentrated in and around the courthouse in the middle of Main Plaza. General Wall took some 200 San Antonio men prisoner that morning and began making preparations to march on Austin. Captain Jack Hayes, returning from his scouting mission, discovered the disaster and set off to alert other Texians. Within days, 200 men, including many San Antonians, of course, gathered on Cibolo Creek northeast of town. By September 16th, they began advancing towards Salado Creek on San Antonio's east side. That same day, General Wall sent out the Bear Defenders and some 200 men far to the east to cut off reported reinforcements. The next day, September 17th, the Bear Defenders surprised and crushed a 53-man Texian militia unit. Only 18 or so Texians survived the Dawson Massacre, as it would later be known. 
At the same time, however, sensing perhaps that General Wool was not at full force, the Texians now on Salado Creek determined to lure General Wool out into battle. Captain Jack Hayes, Ben McCullough, and 36 other men rode to within shouting range of the Mexican lines. They began to taunt them and eventually baited the Mexican cavalry out into the field. In their best imitation of the Comanche tactics with which they had now become familiar, they drew just close enough to provoke an attack from the numerically superior Mexican cavalry, then set themselves to full-fledged flight. They rode on, mile after mile to the east, drawing the Mexican force back to Salado Creek toward a spot between modern-day Austin Highway and Riddiman Road. Just as they crossed the creek, the rest of the Texian volunteers emerged and fired into the Mexican cavalry charge, shredding their formation and halting their momentum. The stunned cavalry absorbed the Texian fire for half an hour or more, while General Wool, who had heard the sounds of the engagement, marched out with some 400 infantry to support them. Texian marksmanship and superior weapons devastated General Wool's force. Eventually, his soldiers refused to keep fighting. After several hours of battle, some 60 Mexicans lay dead and another 60 wounded, with only one dead and nine wounded on the Texian side. General Wool scurried back into town. He realized that the momentum had turned against him, and that the Texian force would only grow as more reinforcements trickled in. Wool knew that he needed to get out of San Antonio, but he resolved to inflict as much damage to the little frontier town as possible before he did. First, he issued an order declaring that all Mexicans, by which of course he meant Tejanos, were to return to Mexico with him or be considered traitors. This was hardly a choice. General Wool was then holding prisoner 200 San Antonians who had defied him a few days before, and so 200 families dutifully packed up their belongings to go with him. Although most would return once they no longer had guns pointed at their heads, the action furthered Santa Ana's strategy of sowing seeds of mistrust between Tejano and Anglo neighbors. General Wool then had to decide what to do with his San Antonio prisoners. As much as he might have liked to, General Wool knew that he couldn't force march 200 San Antonio prisoners back with him, so he cherry-picked the ones that he believed to be the most important. There's some evidence that Juan Seguin played a behind-the-scenes role here in winning releases for many of the prisoners, including, for example, Brian Callahan Sr., but when General Wool finally marched out of San Antonio on September 20th, just 15 days after he had captured it, he still had with him 67 of the town's most prominent citizens, including Horace Alsbury, the husband of Juana Navarro of Alamo fame, Samuel Maverick, and John Tuig. The so-called San Antonio prisoners were in for an ordeal. Over the next four months, they would be marched over 1,000 miles, past the old Rio Grande missions, to Monclova, Saltillo, San Luis Potosí, and eventually Mexico City, covering as much as 30 miles a day on some occasions, on foot, and in winter. Juana Navarro Alsbury proved herself as bold as ever and followed her captured husband's march as long as she could, halfway through the state of Coahuila, until she eventually turned back to lobby for her husband's release through other channels. The prisoners were incarcerated in the same prison where the members of the ill-fated Santa Fe expedition had been held the year before. Some were forced to work at hard labor. Some would be held for almost two years. And some would never make it home. Soon, more Texians joined them. A retaliatory expedition had been organized in San Antonio after General Wall's departure, the so-called Mir Expedition, which fared even worse than the Santa Fe Expedition had. 300 Texians had marched from San Antonio to the Rio Grande Valley, captured the inconsequential town of Mir on the Mexican side, but were then captured by Mexican Centralist forces. With this typical brutality, Santa Ana ordered them all executed, but the capturing officers refused, instead filling a jar with nine white beans to every one black one and forcing the prisoners of war to select a bean out of the jar. The men who chose the black beans were executed. The rest were marched off to prison. Slowly, however, most did make it home. Thanks to Juana Navarro's lobbying, Horace Alsbury was released on March 24, 1843. Samuel Maverick was released in April through the efforts of the U.S. Minister to Mexico. And a few months later, on July 2nd, John Tuig and about a dozen other San Antonians tunneled their way out of their prison, made their way to Veracruz on foot, 
and made it home by a steamship to New Orleans almost seven months later. No other community had to bear the burden of Texas independence the way that San Antonio did, and no San Antonian was left unscarred by the period. According to Juan Seguin's memoirs, quote, there was not one family who did not now mourn the loss of a relative, and as a culmination of their misfortunes, they found their houses in ruins, their fields laid waste, and their cattle destroyed or dispersed, end quote. Worse, the period had tested many of the bonds that had held old San Antonians together through previous hardships. Hundreds of Anglo families had just had their loved ones imprisoned and in some cases executed by Mexican centralists, who had then forced hundreds of Tejano families at gunpoint to make a choice that guaranteed them treatment as a traitor no matter which option they chose. Mistrust and ill will began to run wild, and as Texas Ranger captain and historian of the period Rip Ford would later acknowledge, quote, Tejanos did not always receive fair and honorable treatment at the hands of Texians, end quote. There were new efforts by land speculators to nullify land titles held by old Tejano families. To the eternal credit of Texas courts, most of these suits were dismissed, and the courts typically found ways to cure defective Spanish and Mexican titles to honor custom and obvious patterns of use. Yet defending against these spurious attacks wasn't cheap for old Tejano landowners, and sadly, their victories in court only infuriated their opponents even more. And with Lorenzo de Zavala and José Francisco Ruiz long dead, Juan Seguin discredited, and José Antonio Navarro rotting away in a Mexican prison, there were few left to advocate in their name. You could make a strong argument that this period was the nadir of San Antonio's history. And I don't say that lightly. We're talking here about a community that had just a generation before suffered the genocidal reign of a Spanish royalist general who had killed a third or more of the men in the city, a town that had endured a century and a half of brutal attacks by Plains Indians, and a population that had suffered with tragic regularity epidemics that killed a quarter or more of its inhabitants. And yet 1844 San Antonio might have been worse. In that year, its population fell to 800 people, its lowest level in a century. Many of its oldest residents had moved on, some by choice, some not. Even San Antonio's old lifeline, international trade, had been effectively cut off by all the invasions and counter-invasions, which subjected every wagon train to the risk of theft by armies that acted sometimes more like bandits. Violence and murders were common in town. Convictions were not. In Juan Seguin's words, quote, In those evil days, San Antonio swarmed with adventurers from every quarter of the globe and was the receptacle for the scum of society, end quote. And yet, curiously, it's the decade before and after this period that really becomes the defining period of not just San Antonio's, but really of Texas's mythology. Maybe it's too much to say that the entire Texas identity comes out of the San Antonio of this period, but the horses, the cattle, the lariats, the chaps, the boots, the spurs, the saddles, the hats, the cowboys, the Indians, the food, the rodeos, the lingo, the land craziness, well, they sure do. And they'd been a part of daily life in San Antonio by this point for 150 years. Sometime around this period, Anglo-Americans began to adopt them as fitting symbols of other dearly held American ideals. And interestingly, around this time, San Antonio's cultural influence begins to spread south as well. We all know that the stylized outfits of charros come from central Mexico and Jalisco, but the feats of horsemanship that they perform have been informed as much by the ranching techniques developed on the ranges around San Antonio as by old Iberian equestrian traditions refined in the Mexican highlands. Just as rodeo would later be recognized as the national sport of Texas, San Antonio-inspired charreria would later be anointed the national sport of Mexico. And much in the way that America would adopt the cowboy as a symbol of simplicity, honesty, and self-reliance, so too is the charro later adopted in large swaths of Mexico as a uniquely regional expression of certain old Hispanic ideals. And so if there's anything redemptive about this period, it's that Americans and Mexicans both, independently, albeit indirectly, seem to acknowledge that somehow San Antonio at this time was giving birth to the fullest, highest expression of each of their cultures, and God bless them for it. San Antonians of this period are worthy of our admiration. They were enterprising and impossibly hard men and women. 
Samuel Maverick's wife, Mary, who kept a diary for most of her life, describes women like herself going down to the San Antonio River to bathe with friends, each armed with a brace of pistols and a bowie knife fixed on their belts. It's a shame that cameras came around a few decades too late to capture that picture, and yet the imagery and the ideology of the age lives on all around us in other ways. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a review. Do it. Now. It'll be worth your time. We're working on a special promotion right now to recognize people that have taken the time to review our podcast. We'll announce it in a few weeks, but I promise it'll be worth your time. It's a fun little gift that you'll enjoy. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio. For this episode, I want to thank historian Raul Ramos for his work, Beyond the Alamo. It's a strong, well-researched work on this muddy period of San Antonio's history, focusing on the entire period from 1821 to 1861, which really does have to be studied together to even begin to make sense of what's going on here. 